Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey out there, rock and rollers around the world. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded right here in central London, right off Abbey Road. And 25th is a nice little milestone for us here on The Wolf. A lot of podcasts don't last that long, from what I understand. When we first got started, a couple of people snickered at us and said, hey, you know, let me know when you get to your 10th episode, because a lot of people don't make it past the 5th or 6th. They just run out of topics, they run out of ideas, or they're convinced that the first few shows are going to make them worldwide rich and famous. That's not really what Jackson and I are into this for. We're just two old friends who love rock music, who love to talk about it, love to talk about the minutiae of who writes the songs, who plays on the songs, when and where are they recorded, what's the entirety of the album, what are the B-sides, what other bonus tracks or unreleased material were recorded around the same time, how do these guys fit into the rock and roll family tree. And that's something we've been doing for decades and we're glad to still be able to do it. Now all we do is record it and share it with folks around the world. And we've got people in more than 50 countries listening to us now, and that really blows us away. So it's not just our friends and family who are making fun of us. We've got people all over the world. Now, you know, there are a lot of great rock fans out there who want to share their knowledge and want to know more about the bands they love. And so that's really all we're doing here. So for our 25th show in just six months, we're going to talk about a band that if you've listened to our previous shows, you probably guessed we were going to get to at some point, and that's the 80s first real supergroup, Asia, made up of Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Steve Howe of Yes, Jeff Downs of The Buggles, and also a brief stint in Yes, and John Wetton on the bass and lead vocals, who had been in King Crimson, Uriah Heep, Roxy Music, Band Called UK, had a distinct, powerful, yet soulful voice. So all these guys are big progressive rock stars, but could they make pop rock music? So in the early 80s, that's exactly what they did. They got together and formed Asia, the the 80s first supergroup. And thanks to MTV and Geffen Records, they took off. Their single, Heat of the Moment, was huge for MTV. And of course, Jeff Downs, having been in the Buggles, was a part of two seminal moments in MTV history. First of all, the first video they ever played, Video Killed the Radio Star, starred him and his partner Trevor Horn in The Buggles, who eventually went on to be in Yes for a small stint. Then, at the end of 1983, Asia played in the first concert ever televised live via satellite across the United States of America, Asia in Asia. So Jeff Downs might not be very well known to the average music fan, but he was incredibly important in the creation and development of MTV as a huge part of pop culture, especially in American life. Now, we came to Asia a little bit late in life. We found them when we were in college, not necessarily when they first came out in the early 80s. And they just have a certain sound that hit me in a certain spot that I really liked. So over the years, I've researched them. I've gotten to know all their records, listened to all of them through. And Look, the original band only lasted really two years, not even. A couple of records, 
a couple of tours, and that was it. And they had to split up, go their separate ways, and it was never quite the same again. Now, they did get together uh, in 2006 to kind of celebrate their 25th anniversary and to do a tour, and from there, they stuck together for a little while, did more records and more tours, and we'll get into that. But this episode, we're going to focus solely on the formation of Asia, their sound, and their first album, Asia, which sold more than 4 million copies in the United States alone. Heat of the Moment was number one on the rock chart for two months, and the album went on to be the number one selling album in America in 1982. Huge. Unfortunately, due to all sorts of different circumstances, their success didn't last. But the songs from the first album created a fan base of which Jackson and I are a part that have remained loyal over the years and allowed them to continue to put out records, to continue to tour, to get the original band back together, and to still have an effect on pop culture. Now, as usual, you can listen to all of our past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And you can download us and subscribe anywhere, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, anywhere you get your podcast. Be sure to follow us at ugly underscore werewolf and at ActionJack72 on Twitter. But for now, we want to tell you about one of our favorite bands, a band that is much maligned, a band that is overlooked and forgotten by most folks. But this band means a lot to us. Heat of the Moment was an amazing pop song. I think it's the best pop rock song of all time, bar none. And the first Asia album is the best pop prog rock album ever made. And I wish I could play it for you here. We don't have the rights, but you can go out and check it out. And I encourage you to do so. So listen to us going in depth on Asia's 1982 debut album, Here on the Wolf. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So what kind of reaction do you get from people when you talk about Asia? Or do you just never speak in polite conversation about Asia? Who are we, who are we talking about? Are we talking about like people our age, people 
younger, my wife. Well, yeah, well, you like, you know, friends, you know, maybe if you're talking about music or, you know, maybe you hear a song or something like that. When Asia comes up, like, what's the tone? I think the tone is kind of like, oh, like, like my uh, my son likes to use the term, okay, boomer. Okay, boomer? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like you're a baby boomer and you're old as anything. So mm-hmm. I, that's that's kind of what it feels like to me. Like, like what age? Like from the 80s? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you bringing this up right now? I'm like, oh, they're great. Are they? Because I only ever heard one song maybe a million years ago. Right. That That's kind of the, the thing, right? Like maybe yeah. they remember Heat of the Moment. Maybe they remember Don't Cry. That's about it, right? They were kind of correct one-hit wonders and kind of victims of the MTV generation, right? And although, I mean, you know... (laughs) It's funny because we kind of got into them a little bit in college, but that's just because we finally found a song. Look, I didn't really know Asia that well in the early 80s. Uh, Because in 1882, when their album came out, when it came out, I was eight. And later that summer, I turned nine. And I was just starting to get into music, right? And I'm just starting to see these guys, Duran Duran and Men at Work and people like that on MTV. And But the, the song, actually two songs from the first album, uh, Heat of the Moment and Only Time Will Tell, first two singles, they were in the air, right? They were on the radio in 1982. They were on MTV, though I didn't get to watch it all that much. But I, you know, back in the day on the radio, they wouldn't always say, that was Heat of the Moment by Asia, and now here comes... That's all by Genesis. You know, it was, they would play four or five songs, and maybe you'd be lucky if you heard what one of the bands was, right? They wouldn't always name the songs and the artists. So I didn't ever really know Heat of the Moment or Asia, but I obviously the melody of the song got into my brain and wormed its way in there. And then once I heard it again when I was older, I'm like, oh, wait, that's that song that I liked from when I was a kid. What is it? And it was Asia. So he, the moment, I always had this like infatuation with the song, but I never really knew who it was by. And then once we were older in college, I'm like, oh man, I love that song, Heat of the Moment. Well, do they have like a greatest hits album or something I can pick up so I can get that and see what other good songs on it? Uh, so that's when we got the greatest hits album that we had that came out in 1990, which is called Asia Then, then and Now. Then right? and Now, yeah. correct. Which correct. had five songs from back in the day, from the first couple albums, and then five songs that John Wetton and Jeff Downs had kind of gotten together and made later in the decade. And I think maybe Carl Palmer was around too. So it's yeah, it then now five old songs and five new songs, which is kind of kind of weak if you think about it. It's like you don't even have enough for a greatest hits, like pure nine or ten song greatest hits. And you also don't have enough to be like, okay, we're back and here's some new stuff. You don't have that either. You know, it's, it's kind of the worst of both worlds. <laughs> It definitely felt a little. It, well, I remember when that when that record came out, and it was "Days Like These" was the single, the new single. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking the same thing: like that's a little, that's a little janky because it's not either one of those things. It's not a new record, and it's not a yeah. Like you have it's your greatest hits. There's five tracks on here that are greatest hits. But back to the beginning, I really think that I remember the the video from Heat of the Moment. And Mm -hmm. I remember we had just gotten cable and my parents had these friends that had like kids that were older than I was. So maybe they were like in high school and they were, we were, MTV was verboten back then. That was Satan was speaking directly to you through MTV. You're not watching that. Right. So I was like, Hey, Hey, hey guys, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing in here? You know, uh, what's, uh, what's, what's on TV and heat of the moment was on with the, with the images that kept scrolling across and changing. And I'm That's like, right. Oh, this is, this is really cool. And that riff, 
that riff at the beginning, there was something about that. That's still one of the coolest rock riffs ever laid down. And it's like, I think that kind of just started me into the like, that is just really cool. It's really intense. I mean, can you imagine standing on stage and hitting those chords and having people flip out like, that's so awesome. And then, yeah, I didn't know anything about, you know, I remember there was press for it. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's all these bands coming together. I'm like, well, I never heard any of those bands. So I guess they were cool a million years ago, but I mean, yes. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Like that was before 90125 came out. So I had never, okay. Like that's right. One of those. Oh yeah, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, King Crimson. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've heard of those guys before. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Like, what is that? A law firm? I've never heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? To, to set the stage a little bit. So it's kind of the first super group of the 80s, right? And guys who had had success in previous bands who kind of found each other. And, and from what I found, progressive rock bands, and, and the big ones being like Pink Floyd and Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, and there's others, obviously, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in there. I would throw Rush in there, although they're a little hard for those guys sometimes. You know, Uriah Heep, you could probably throw in there. All these guys kind of know each other, and they kind of switch into each other's bands and things like that. Like, for instance, Greg Lake is on the original Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. Eventually, he left, and in 1972, he was replaced by John Wetton on bass and lead vocals, you know, and Bill Bruford had been in Yes, and then he went into King Crimson. He had a cup cup of coffee in Genesis when Phil was first put out front to sing. He was in a band called UK at the end of the 70s with John Wetton uh, and a couple other guys. It didn't really get big in America, but, you know, it's, it's good progressive stuff. So, and, and John Wetton played in Roxy Music with Phil Manzanera. He played in Uriah Heep for a while, you know, so... He was kind of a guy who was never, he was in a band called Family. So he, he was never a kind of huge star in his own right. He was always kind of filling in for somebody else. And then his band UK did all right, but it wasn't huge. So then by 1980, 81, after he'd made a solo album, he was looking to do something, something cool. Steve Howe, of course, was the, really the only guitarist of consequence in the history of Yes, on all the classics, really, except for, of course, 90125, where Trevor Raven came in. But he figures into the Asia story as well. And so after Drama, the record and tour with Yes, which featured Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs from The Buggles, replacing Rick Wakeman and John Anderson, that fell apart. I think it was physically difficult on Trevor to try to sing like John Anderson, and I don't know if they were really accepted by the true Yes fans. So Yes kind of went away and took a break, uh, and that left them. And then uh, ELP, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, had been on a break too. So Carl Palmer, the drummer, who's a fantastic drummer, was available. And I think it was John Kalodner, A&R great. He was at Atlantic, but he went to Geffen to work with David Geffen to really pump up their rock catalog. And he got John Wetton together with Steve Howe so they could start writing some songs together. Uh, and that was kind of the genesis of Asia. Of course, eventually they were able to pull in Jeff Downs because Steve knew him from his time together And Yes. And actually, Trevor Rabin was thrown in there for a while, which a lot of people don't know. It's very interesting that the guy who replaced Steve Howe and Yes was actually going to, they tried playing together in Asia and it just didn't work. Yeah, and, and you know, you went back to this, the supergroup deal. Mm-hmm. You were saying the first supergroup from the 80s. I think they were the first supergroup period that were marketed as such. I mean, you had other things like, I mean, you can say Crosby, Stills, and Nash, that was a super group. Right. Yeah. Blind Faith, that was obviously a super group. But this one, I remember they, they really pushed that idea of, you know, these are all these bands are coming together and making this great record. And so I think they kind of had a lot of 
maybe what started off as kind of like a pet project, like you were talking about, like, oh, you know, we're hanging around. Yeah, let's do some stuff together. It was like, well, wait a minute. Like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever released. Ooh, hey, easy there. And then, yeah, they, they put the record out and it, and it was huge. They had huge hits off of it. But I think then, you know, that starts to, oh boy, maybe this was, maybe maybe we hyped this a little bit too much that we were all super pals and you right. know, we're gonna, this is going to go on forever. Well, and the, the other thing is, you know, they made the record and Kalodner, who we also talk about on our previous episode on Aerosmith, because he was huge for Aerosmith and, and reigniting their flame in the 80s and, and 90s. He's like, I don't hear a single. I don't know which one is going to really be the single. And so Wetton had a little bit uh, of some lyrics and uh, Jeff had a little bit of a tune. And the last song they wrote for the album was Heat of the Moment. Um, and it's why you have the line, catch the pearl and ride the dragon's wings, because they already had the Roger Dean artwork of the big dragon splashing around in the ocean with this huge pearl up in the sky that I don't know if he's fighting or he's trying to eat it or whatever it is. It's an incredible Roger Dean cover, an amazing piece of art. I, I was actually thinking, because I was thinking about this too, about Roger Dean and the tie-in with, you know, having it look like obviously old Yes records or classic Yes records. I think it's one of the coolest things he's ever done. And I think what, while there are other other ones that you can look at and say, wait, which one was that again? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was this album. You know, you know the Asia one right off the bat. There's only one thing going on. It's just the dragon coming out of the water. That was a really cool, nice touch. And it's crazy too when you say that about that single. Mm-hmm. How many times you've heard that same story? Like, ah, oh, you know, we didn't know, and then we needed one more song, and we sat down and wrote Blump, and right. that was the big one. Like, what? What were you waiting for on yeah, that? I but think... sometimes that's just creative spark. I think Carrie, who wrote Dust in the Wind, it was like that. You know, it's like, all right, we kind of need one more song. It's like, well, I got this one thing my wife said I should make out of the the practice, you know, figure that I used to do on my guitar. I guess we could make a song out of that. It's dust in the wind man you know yeah yeah what were you waiting for (laughs) and it just leads you to believe you know how much is still out there in the air how much was never recorded you know how how much they said yeah i don't really like that i'm not going to work on that and it could have been amazing You, you just you never know or how many people out there who maybe said, hey, Dad, I want to learn to play the piano. And your dad said, I'm not buying you a piano. It's expensive. It's going to take up a bunch of room in the living room. And then after six months, you're not going to want to do it anymore. Well, look at, I mean, look, look at the Ozzy Osbourne story. I mean, he said when he when he left Black Sabbath, he was like, he was, law, and Randy Rhodes sat down and taught him like a musical teacher <laughs> how to write songs. Okay, here's what you do first. and here, and, and if he hadn't done that, who knows? Right. So, yeah, I mean, how many people were like that that maybe have talent but were never encouraged or on the flip side, how many of these guys that can write songs didn't write it because they were like, you know what? I think there's cocaine and booze in the other room. Let's do that <laughs> instead. Yay. Right. So, yeah. That's yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's crazy to me how you can, you can look at it from two ways. You can see things that took forever to write. Like, Oh man, I was working on that song for a year. And then stuff like, you know, I slipped and fell in the shower and boom, here comes something yeah. incredible. It's like a spirit enters the room and you just, you just have to, to let it, you know, and you have to let it engulf you and be a part of you and let it come through you. You get that stuff out of there. It's it's a moment of time. So many great songs are written in, you know, five or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So, And I can imagine, too, if you're a musician and you, you know, you're a musician A and you're kind of just like, eh, and then the other person comes in and says, like, dust in the wind. Here, I've got this. And they start. And then that just, the light comes on. I know exactly what we're doing with that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well. 
And so Kaladner apparently didn't really like the Dragon album cover at first. He's like, well, it's a little bit too much like, yes, plus the, the Asia logo, the name Asia. He did in a kind of certain font in a Roger Dean kind of font with like the pyramid on the A's. And it gave it a brand. He didn't necessarily like that at all. But although he's made some amazing decisions and gotten some great stuff released over the years, I think he's earned his way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a contributor. He, he was wrong about that, man. The, the iconic logo and that album cover is classic. Yeah, and I think that if you go back and look at it, all the giant rock bands, the Rolling Stones, you know, Metallica, all they all have a, like, you don't even, you can just look at the font and know what it is. And you're right, that Egyptian-looking pyramid mm-hmm. Asia font, you can't miss it. They use it in all the records. Yeah, you need to have a brand yeah. on there. Led Zeppelin, Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. You know what it looks like, right? You know their font. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And then all of a sudden, Geffen knew they had something special on their hands. So they got Godly and Cream to come and shoot, direct their videos to get on this new thing, MTV, which had just come out in 1981, right? So MTV had only been out maybe seven or eight months, nine months or something, when uh, the first Asia record came out. And you're right, yeah, with the screens going back and forth and that huge riff of Steve Howe to begin, it's it's heavy and yet it's it's completely pop and all these guys come from this progressive background right where it's like you're talking about long solos very intricate long songs you know sometimes the whole side of an album time change signatures and all this crazy stuff and they're like let's make this more of an AOR kind of thing let's take all that great stuff but squish it down to four or five minutes instead of like 12 or 15 minutes. And the critics railed against it. And I can understand why they would at first. You know, critics have to criticize stuff. It sounds very Journey, REO, Speedwagon-y, polished, kind of. Yeah, um, manufactured. Yeah, like, right. like yeah. Write me a song to be on the radio. Okay, here we go. Okay, here it is. And, and to your point with uh, with Steve Howe, like, yeah, go back and listen to those early, well, every Yes record he was ever on. That doesn't sound like anything he's ever done before. Like, if you were to hear that, who was that? Steve Howe from Yes? No, that's not him. He plays intricate, like you said, classical pieces. And this is like your ACDC, you know, chord, just, you know, mm-hmm. windmilling it up there on stage. So, yeah, I could see how people would have said this is just manufactured junk for the radio yeah but but it wasn't you know these are amazing musicians they got together on their own it came together naturally they worked hard on the songs and now they had a big corporate machine david geffen gets stuff done uh, in the record industry now in the movie industry he, he gets stuff done and john Kaladner, the anr genius did as well you know and they got him onto mtv and they got it out there and it, and it sold incredibly well it was the number one selling album in the United States of America in 1982. I'll say Which that again. Something. It was yeah. the number one selling album in the United States of America in 1982. Thriller was number one in 83 and 84. Like Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA was 85. Whitney Houston was 1986. You know, the Wall was 1980. That's who you have to be to sell the most albums in a year. And in 1982, it was Asia. And I think that's one of those, that's the biggest thing when people are like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I remember them from back. And then you tell them that, like, they, that can't possibly be, because you're right. You think of all those, you know, like, Thriller sold, what, like 60 million copies or something? Nuts. Yeah, it's it should not, it, it, there's no way that should be a true statement, <clears throat> but it is. It absolutely is. And that just, it proves the te- that it proves that those songs were extremely rock-friendly 
radio friendly, MTV friendly, and people went out and just bought the thing. And I think it was probably because of the cover too. It all came together in a package you wanted to have. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and John Wetton was John Wetton was a good looking guy. He, he kind of had some really serious battles with alcohol, which led him to gain weight. But at the beginning, in kind of heyday of Asia, he was still in pretty good shape. It was you know was tan. You know he looked good in the videos. You know, and so it, it it was working for them. You know, and I guess it just it hit my brain at a very formative time. And for whatever reason, that sound and it's not a real long song. It's not even four minutes long. It's the shortest song on the record. Yeah, it's it's and I think the single version might even be a little shorter. But the the version on the record is not four minutes long. I don't know. It just hits me in a certain spot where I'm like that. That's pop rock genius right there. Now, if you were 20 and that song came out, you're probably like, that's nothing compared to, you know, the stuff I was listening to in the 70s, you know, or whatever. I understand that. I honestly can't explain why I love it so much. It just hits me in a certain spot in my brain that I love. I can't explain it. Well, if you would just want to talk about that track in particular for a second, like it, it kind of has a lot of stuff going for it obviously the chords at the beginning mm-hmm. and then the drums come in and then Wetton comes in kind of not by himself but like definitely featured with the with the vocals he's got a really strong rock voice like you know maybe you hadn't heard King Crimson but you're like yeah this guy can really belt it out and then the uh solo's pretty good the chorus mm-hmm. I mean, you know it's the, and it's Another one of those songs too, where like there's there's some songs you're like, is this wait, is this what song is this? Is this A or is this which one that you know heat of the moment right off the bat? As soon as that chord comes in, you know to just crank that thing up as loud as it'll go. That's right, and yeah, and John Wetton had an amazing voice. It was beautiful. It was powerful because he could do ballads as well as he could do a big rock song. You know, you know when he died, obviously a lot of people paid tribute to him. But Clapton released like a little instrumental in his honor. I'm like, you know, Clapton's one of the guys who didn't really ever record with him as much as they both recorded with so many people. But he came out and was like, that voice was extraordinary. You know, I'm so sorry to see him go. I'm like, well, that was pretty cool of Eric. But that was huge. It was, it got to number four on the top 40 and it got to number one on mainstream rock. And I think it was number one for like eight or nine weeks, the song. That's probably why I have such a good memory of it, even though I maybe necessarily didn't know it was them because it was just on so much and it got into my brain, you know. And then if you switch to the the next big single, Only Time Will Tell, then that's, you kind of do the same thing but it's now it's downs on the keyboard with mm-hmm. that intro that you know exactly what that song is too. So it's kind of the same formula in, you know, in air quotes that it's, it's got that signature intro to it, but not the guitar. So I always thought that was kind of cool too, that they could switch it up and not just have the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I'll have to agree with you there. Yeah, absolutely. But even like the break in heat and heat of the moment, you know, they kind of go to a break and, and Carl's kind of, on his cymbals yeah. there going along and then Jeff puts in a little keyboard and John thumps his bass and then Steve comes down on his neck a couple of times, you know, it, it, and then it builds back up. Carl Palmer's an amazing drummer. I, I saw Carl Palmer play with Asia actually when they're opening for Journey a few years back. Uh, and I'm like, you know, everyone's kind of older. Maybe everyone's lost a step. Not Palmer, man. He is still an on-top-of-it amazing huh. drummer, still in great shape, and he, he kicked it out. I was, I was impressed – 
I walked away that night just thinking one thing, Carl Palmer still got the goods. And that's interesting, too, because you figure the, the drumming and drumming at a high level is a young guy's game. To be that to be that uh, into it at that age, I mean, I don't know how old he was when you saw him, but that, that's a testament to really putting the work in and not just like, eh, I play every once in a while. Nah, you've, gotta, you've really got to keep it together yeah, to I, do it that, at that level. I felt bad for Carl Palmer around that time, too, because – you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer have gotten back together over the years and done more tours and some music and stuff like that. But within a pretty short period of time, Greg Lake died, Keith Emerson committed suicide, and John Wetton died. So it was like two-thirds of his bandmates and his biggest band were lost. He's like, well, I can't do ELP anymore, but at least I can still do Asia because they're back. And then John Wetton died. It's like, oh, geez, you know. Because that was supposed to be a big a big comeback for them, was was being a, was, you know, fronting Journey, being the opening act for Journey. Journey was back in a huge way doing arenas and big amphitheaters. So for them to come out and do 50 minutes, you know, eight or nine songs, their best hits, that's a big deal from them. They're not doing clubs and theaters. They're in front of big audiences where they should be. It'd be a nice way to kind of go out in style. And they did, but it wasn't quite what it could have been because John wasn't there, which is kind of a recurring theme throughout the history of Asia. Yeah, I was going to say that. And, and unfortunately, when you get when you get somebody, when you replace the vocalist and the vocalist is distinctive like that and mm-hmm. you try you want to do the same thing it's never the same deal like to me you've got to go the van halen sammy hagar where it's like we're gonna we're doing something different now right. you're not trying to be the same guy and i think that was always kind of the deal with asia like they had that asia in asia with greg lake right and i was watching that and first of all let me point out that if you watch the whole thing What's his name comes out and does the intro? Uh, Mark, Mark Goodman. Goodman. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't imagine. This is a little bit of a tangent here, but I can't imagine anything cooler than being one of those original MTV VJs. I mean, the stories they must be able to tell are insane because they got to do all that stuff, all of it. I know, I know. I saw this week as we were recording this. This week, Martha Quinn turned sixty-two. I said, <laughs> Martha Quinn is sixty-two. How old am you I? <laughs> <laughs> Holy wow. mackerel. I know. I know. She still looks yeah. pretty good, but you know, when she was on MTV, she was just the coolest, cutest thing in the whole world. And, and the other cool thing too was that back then, you since there were only four of them, you had to do everything. Like right. they were talking to Boy George and then in 10 minutes, I'm going to be talking to Ozzy Osbourne right. because that's, there wasn't like the rock person and the this person, that was it. But it, but back to the Asia and Asia. So then, then Greg Lake comes out. Right. right. It's not. And then I think it was one of those like, did we know that Wetton wasn't here or. Right. And then and then Lake, I mean, Lake sounds great and he plays the bass great, but he's trying to do a Wetton impression. Yeah. I think that's the deal. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. What is this? Yeah, I'll talk more about that later. I have plenty to say on that subject, but I want to focus on Alrighty. the writing. I want to focus on the first album here, because honestly, it's one of those albums I can listen to over and over and over and over and it never gets old. And for what it was billed as, it's just like, oh, this like corporate polished BS AOR thing that was just designed to sell a lot of records. It's amazing music. To put the progressive stuff in a condensed way, a little more rock, a little more popular, I think they did something that not many bands have ever really done. I, I think it's special. And it upsets me that more people don't know it or hold it in the guard. Let me ask you this question, though, because this came out in what, 82? Mm -hmm. Did this influence 90125? Did Yes hear this and say, "Hmm, I, I think this is the formula? 
we need to well perhaps emulate. you know because they they had Trevor Rabin he probably heard some of their demos some of the songs they uh-huh. were working on and then he goes to work with uh, Squire and White they were going to call it cinema you know they're going to call it something other than yes but then they said no you know we can get more mileage out of a yes record than a cinema record you, correct you may be on to something there Jackson you know because the thing is it's like you you see these tracks you're like 348 444 okay obviously that's what people want to hear I mean this this album is selling like it's nobody's business this is this is what we the blueprint we need to follow I don't, I don't know but but to your point this is this is kind of a cool deal too because if you had only ever heard heat of the moment and only time will tell maybe soul survivor mm-hmm. you know you kind of get into the rest of this and you're like no hey wait a minute it, yeah this this is a pretty good record forget everything else forget the hype forget mm-hmm. the the two big singles yeah you can really listen to this whole thing and that's kind of a cool i mean we've talked about this before it's really cool when you find that like treasure, like, hey, wait a minute. Here's some other cool tracks I've never heard before. Yeah. This is awesome. And the sad thing is I never heard the whole album until the heyday of Napster. And all of a sudden that album that you never really got to listen to or that you had on cassette, but you never upgraded to CD. Now you can download it and you get it on CD or you get it on MP3 and take it with you or whatever. And I know that that cost changed changed the record business, and it cost bands some money. But honestly, to me, I went out and bought a lot more records because of, I downloaded stuff from Napster or wherever for free, then got to listen to it, and then like, oh well, then I should buy their new album when it comes out, or I should buy the you know the the 25th anniversary of this or whatever. So it, it's kind of a double edged sword, right? I mean, it gets your music out, it gets more people aware of it, but yeah, if they get it for free, they're probably a lot less likely to buy it. Okay, so you would. We- you talked about then and now mm-hmm. right the greatest hits record and it had heat of the moment and it had only time will tell yep okay and we listened to that one night <laughs> it was one fateful night we listened to it a million times yeah so you said you hadn't listened to that whole record until you downloaded it on napster right so my brother went to indiana university mm-hmm. and i drove him out there one year to get him set up and then i was hanging around with greg and john Okay. Okay. So we, you know, a couple days and then I went back. I was in, I was hanging out with John and he said to me, Hey, you love these guys, right? And he had the original Asia record that he had bought. Not the greatest hits, but the original. The LP? He was like, No, 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 the CD. He was like, Yeah, I'm tired of this. You want it. I'm like, I'll take it if you don't want it. That was the first time I ever had the full copy of that. Wow. (laughs) Thank you, John. I appreciate, I appreciate you. Only listening to the two right to two tracks, right. not liking it, and then just gifting it to me because I'll take it. That's amazing, dude. That's so, that's so <laughs> funny. And did it have Ride Easy on it? Uh, did it have Ride Easy on it? I would have to go back and check. I haven't actually listened to that in a while. I don't think so. I think it was. I think it was one of those ones. It was probably like a like an early '90s copy uh, that was like the um, the nice price or mm-hmm. the you know one of those ones that you could buy for like eight bucks, but it was like all it was yeah. it was uh, blank on the inside so no I don't think it had right easy on it because that's the thing as far as I know this was my first having bonus tracks on CDs and stuff like that became very prevalent in the late 80s and 90s like buy it on CD we're going to give you an extra track or two and this came out in 1982 yes it came out on CD originally but almost nobody had a CD player but if you bought it on CD or cassette even on cassette they gave you a bonus track the 10th song was right easy which was the B-side to Heat of the Moment in American Around the World I think Time Again 
was the B-side in the UK. And if I can find that somewhere, Jackson, once record stores are open this week, I might just try to pick that up. But Oh, that would be cool. That would be cool to have the UK version of it. Yeah. But then, yeah, Right Easy was on uh, the cassette back in the day. One more heat of the moment note, though. There's the famous line, now you find yourself in 82, the disco hotspots hold no charm for you. Everyone always assumes that you're talking about 1982, because that's when this comes out. But apparently, there was a disco hotspot here in London called 82, kind of like Studio 54 in New York. And, of course, John Wetton being a musician in some big bands, you know, he dated models and things like that and got to go to places like 82. And, you know, heat of the moment and even time will tell. I feel like he's singing these to women and they're not love songs. <laughs> they're not sweet songs. They're kind of like, you know, you're going to miss me when you're when I'm gone. You're, you know, you're, you're going to screw things up in your life and you're going to realize I was right about stuff. Wait, what are you talking about? Like when your looks are gone and you're alone? <laughs> right. How many nights That's you sit beside the phone? <laughs> You'll be sorry. Yeah, you used to yeah, look no, at magazines, girls song. wishing they were you. I, I never knew that about that about eighty two. I just figured that was the year because that was the year because that's when it came out. So it, that's interesting, and that actually that, that makes it a little more timely than than you know like oh you know nineteen eighty two good for yeah. you. And then when we saw them at Celebrities Nightclub in Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> which is the only time we ever went there of course the lineup was different then but they had to play the song was it 92 did they say now you find I yourself believe, in 92 i believe so like you know with the with the wink right Bing. yeah exactly although that was who that was everybody except for when i think I, I don't think carl palmer was in the band then I think I think it was Jeff Downs, John Payne. They had a different drummer. Okay. Palmer had been back with them from '89 to '91 when they did like live in Russia, and they did some of the stuff on Then and Now. But then he left to go back to ELP. Steve Howe came out as a featured guest because he had played on four or five songs on the 1992 oh, album yeah. Aqua, which featured John yeah. Payne on on lead uh, vocals and bass. But they 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 publicized the hell out of it, like Asia. Featuring Steve Howe or special guest Steve Howe, like that, it was a big deal. And he came out after maybe four or five songs, and he did some of his acoustic uh, uh, stuff, and um, and obviously some, you know the old songs together, which is cool. But back to the original record, yeah, those first two songs, Heat of the Moment, Only Time Will Tell. Both had great videos. They both stand up the test of time. Yeah, it's got a lot of keyboard in it, but it's not just synth pop from the early 80s keyboard that's disposable. Jeff Downs is a hell of a composer. He's still making great music to this day. And those two are, are fantastic. And for a while, we liked Only Time Will Tell better than Heat of the Moment, kind of because I just think we knew Heat of the Moment well, and Only Time Will Tell is the one we didn't know as well. So it's like, oh yeah, we like this one, right? Yeah, and and the, and the keyboard intro to that is really cool. And I think I think back to your uh, original point here about the, what kind of gets lost in this whole thing because it was such a giant record. These guys are all really good musicians. Like you were talking about Carl Palmer, I think he kind of dumbed it down for some of this stuff to fit in with the track. I mean, he could have been going nuts back there, Absolutely. but yeah, when you when it, when it flashes like that, mm -hmm. it's it's really cool. And I think it it's too bad that this couldn't have lasted longer because they they could have done i mean who knows what they could have done i know i know there's some great sound on here i do think that they especially on the chorus and stuff like that where they they may have jeff downs and steve howe singing some backup but i think it's like there's one track for jeff downs there's one track for steve howe and there's four for john wet you know like they, they really kind of 
pump up. So it sounds like there's this chorus of people when really it's just John Wetton on four different tracks or something like that. Yeah. But it sounds great. It's kind of right. But it's impossible to harmonize with yourself. That's mm-hmm. correct. Oh, that's right. Yeah. All right. And then Soul Survivor, that was the third single. They did make another single and video, Soul Survivor. It came out later after the summer of 82. But again, it's it's kind of heavy. It's another Wet and Downs written track. And and a lot of, again, big, fat choruses, perfect for AOR. And, and a great uh, a great chorus, too. Again, that I think this is one of those, like, you know, you tracked it a couple times. But yeah, the, the uh, chorus is cool. The vocals are great. I think that, unfortunately, at this at this point in time, after you had those two big ones, this one, I don't want to say fell flat, but it's, it's just not as popular as the other two. It's not quite as radio-friendly, I think. I have to agree with that. It's it's a great song and all, but I mean, yeah, compared to the other two, that's that's going to be tough treading anyway. Yeah. Um, now, after that is a song called One Step Closer, and I love this song, One Step Closer. It's it, it's a little softer now, you know, compared to the, the, uh, the first three. But again, it has a great rhythm to it, and Jeff gets to do some strange stuff kind of on his keyboard at the beginning. Kind of a sweet almost song, but then one step closer, nice big chorus, and, and Steve puts a little bit on there. Steve actually co-wrote this one uh, with John Wetton, and you know, at any time we're taking, just you just need to go one more step, I break out one step closer, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good track but again it's I don't know I don't, I, would, I would have loved to have talked to people who had bought this originally but how many people actually of the people that bought the record originally how many people actually got this far into it <laughs> because unfortunately you've got Heat of the Moment Only Time Will Tell Soul Survivor as 1, 2, and 3 either on the record or on the tape did you keep going? I hope so I but hope I so. don't know yeah. Now, I hope you got to the last track on the first side because Time Again is a fantastic song. It's the only song written by all four of them. I think it was the first song they ever wrote together as a, as a group. And it's a little heavier. Well, I don't know if heavy is the right word. It's a little more rocked out than progged out. Some great drum work on there by Carl. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's that's you know you kind of start to see him flex it out a little bit in this one. Yeah, I think I I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's played in the box that they were looking for at the beginning mm-hmm. or on the on the big tracks. But yeah, it is cool to watch him because that was one thing where I was watching a whole bunch of uh, videos to do this show, and you know people kept commenting, you know he's 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 so great, he's underrated, and I think that really is true because you know you you hear the big ones, okay, you know Neil from Rush, mm-hmm. you know John Bonham, but go back and listen to that like he's really good at what he does yeah. and does not get the does not get the acclaim because i don't think that elp was that big of a band in the united states again you know like all of these proggy bands they just kind of like oh yeah they're cool but eh, you know they're they not, don't they don't get the accolades they deserve right you know and, and elp will probably never get into the rock and roll hall of fame asia certainly won't so you know carl palmer is going to be you know a little underrated but steve howe does some of that great steve howe work on time again <laughs> I, you know i just think it, it's it's awfully solid you know and then you get in a side two, look, the first five songs, all the songs on the first side were under five minutes. The second side, they're all over five minutes. So this is where they can stretch them out a little bit, maybe get a little bit more of that progginess that they're all famous for. And Wildest Dreams is, again, kind of a big, full-body punch in the face, you know? Yeah, and, and I don't, this was not a single, but I think it probably could have been. Mm-hmm. If maybe not on MTV, but maybe more on rock radio where you could get away with 
the five minute, you know, boundaries. Right. But yeah, no, this was a this was a cool track. And it's it's one of those ones where if you again, if you just were listening to the hits, you probably didn't make it to side two of this thing. Right. Which is too bad because right. there's some great stuff on here. The next song without you, you know, slow it down a little bit. This is a wet and how composition and steve's really great guitar work on this it's so good mm. without you you know it's there's no clunkers on here it, it, it still maybe sounds like a certain time period to some maybe but to me it just sounds like good tight rock music with some killer keyboards in it proggy pop rock i wonder if you played these tracks for somebody who maybe you know you're talking at the beginning about what what kind of reaction do you get when you say asia and people Mm -hmm. like oh you know i wonder if you could play them these tracks and they didn't know who it was oh hey this is okay really because you just told me that you didn't like this right (laughs) yeah you know you gotta give it a chance and it's not gonna appeal to everybody the hardcore rockers aren't gonna like it you know and the pop i don't know i feel like the pop people would like it the pop people would like it if it was cool that's the problem (laughs) and i think you get to a certain point at least i've gotten to the point in my life where it's like okay if you like it listen to it if you can you got to get rid of the the prejudices of oh this is so and so i don't listen to that kind of music or oh you know i don't if you like it listen to it yeah just just let it let it kind of play and get rid of whatever you might prejudices you might have against something like this mm-hmm. but yeah this it, this was a little bit of a it was no kind of a no man's land here you know was it too it was too proggy for some people and not poppy enough for other people Right. And the next song, Cutting It Fine, is a great song. It fits in so well right next to Without You. I don't know. I, I, I think it's a great, it's another great song. And it's a little longer. Again, Jeff and Steve helped John Wetton write this. Cutting It Fine, it's 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 not going to be a hit necessarily, but it's a great song. It just fits in so well with the rest of them. And then to me, Here Comes the Feeling is an amazing song, a great way to wrap up the record. And there's a little bit of time changes and then it kind of ramps up the end. It's a great song to kind of play out on because it goes on a little bit. I think Here Comes the Feeling, another one that Steve Howe wrote with John Wetton. It's fantastic. It's awesome to me. And it's nice too because that's what I, we talked about this before. I like when you put, this was originally the last song on the record, that you put one that you want to listen to. It's not like a garbage bin where it's like, oh, we need another one here. Just put this one on. No one's going to listen to it anyway. Yeah, it's a good way to end the record out. And then you get the 10, the ride easy Mm -hmm. as a bonus. Like, hey. Here's something. Thanks for sticking around. That's right. You know, and Steve Howe wrote that with John Wetton. And it's one that they eventually performed live when they got back together in the in the aughts or the noughties, as they call them over here. Um, <laughs> it's what they call them on TV and everything. They call them the noughties. When they got to back together, they played Right Easy, you know, because it is such a good song. And and it was, it was the B-side. It was the B-side to Heat of the Moment in America. But I think it was the B-side to Only Time Will Tell in the UK. Okay. <laughs> so they so they swore swap time and again time again and ride easy in the UK and the US as far as b-sides on heat of the moment only time will tell soul survivors b-side was uh, here comes the feeling but a shortened version of it like instead of the one they stretch out and put all the extra and at the end of here comes the feeling there's kind of like a are you just stretching this out just to have more time on the album you know <laughs> i still love it but it's it's you know it, it's not single so they have a three and a half minute version instead of the five and a half minute version that's that's so famous but that record sold went quadruple platinum in the usa and 10 times platinum around the world heat of the moment was number one for eight or nine weeks on mainstream rock and it was the number one selling album in america in 1982 unbelievable to me and the thing is when they started out on tour they started out in like theaters 
because this is your first album, right? And you don't have any kind of an audience and they, they weren't going to play any of their old band stuff. I think Steve got to play clap and, you know, you know, guitar parts as part of his solo, because like he got a solo and Jeff got a solo and Carl got a solo. Yeah. But you know, they only played like 12 or 13, maybe 14 songs, depending on how you count the uh, Steve solos live. So they started off in, in theaters, but when heat of the moment got huge, all of a sudden, there's huge demand for these tickets. So they they were selling out 1,500, 2,000 seaters. But later in the tour, they went up to arenas because they were that popular. They were that big on the radio. But those first shows, like people were scalping the tickets for like five times the price because there was that much demand out there for it. Yeah, and, that's, and it, that kind of changes the whole dynamic, too, of the tour when you've got to kind of retool it to mm-hmm. play in front of an audience that big, you know, with equipment and then, you know, track listings and everything else like that. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's great. That's what you want. You right. want to play to more people, but I can't I can't imagine, like, logistically, it was like, okay, stop. Let's, let's do this all over again right. and put together a stadium show. Yeah, and this was still the era where, like, tickets in the 70s, tickets were cheap, and, and you basically lost money or didn't make a ton of money on tour. You went out to sell records, and you made a bunch of money from the records. Now, of course, it's complete opposite. You can't, you lose money making records. People don't really do it as much anymore. Even if they make it in their house, in their home studio, you still lose money putting out records unless maybe you're Taylor Swift or something like that. But you, all the money is out on tour, which is why artists are having such a hard time right now with COVID. You can't tour and nobody buys records. Everybody's screwed. And the 80s was starting to start to change over a little bit. But Geffen's like, yeah, get them out there and tour and we can sell all these records. And that's what happened. So you wound up 1982, like you started like, okay, here we are. We're seasoned musicians. We've got a new record, new band. We're at this new label, Geffen. All right, we're going to see how this goes. And by the end of the year, it's huge. It's blown up. You've been all over this new thing called MTV. You start out in theaters. You end in in arenas and maybe even do a, a couple of stadium gigs or whatever. It's, they got to play not Wembley Stadium, but Wembley Arena, which is right next door. Uh, okay. You know, here in uh, in England, it's like, man, all right, we're doing great. Um, and you think, okay, now we're just going to go on to our next success. And this might be where we part one. This is where we parse out part one, 1982, and then part two, everything that comes afterwards. Because it just wasn't quite the same after it. And it's just, to me, that's the story of Asia. A band that was so close to being something bigger and, and more special, at least in the kind of American pop culture zeitgeist. And they kind of had a moment in 82, and it was kind of never the same after. Yeah, and, and you know, going on to the next record, the, the Alpha record, I think if they could have flippy-flopped those and maybe kind of started off slower and then put the big one out second, maybe, that things would have been different. But to have, like you said, to have that much success right off the bat, it was never going to be the same. Never, ever, never, ever, ever. Yeah, it's it's. If your first out, I mean, you know, how, how well did Hootie and the Blowfish's second out do? Because uh, that first one was a huge hit when we were in college. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, again, it's just never the same. They, they, everybody. If, you mean you would figure if you sold, even if you sold eight records, you want the next one to be ten, fifteen on from there. When you sell, would they sell ten million copies mm-hmm. of the first record? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It, you knew that wasn't going to happen. Even if you sold eight and a half, that was still going to be a disappointment. It's just, it, it's the way it goes. And then, you know, oh, well, these guys were, I told you this was just kind of a flash in the pan deal. This was something that wasn't really going to last. 
So that's me and Jackson going in-depth on Asia's first album, Asia. Released in 1982, the number one selling album in America that year. It always blows people's minds when I tell them that. And you know that that's not all we have to say about Asia. Anyone who knows us knows we're going to go on and on, and there's a lot more to talk about. So, as you may have guessed, episode 26 is going to be all about Asia beyond the first record, going into Alpha, the next record, the Asia in Asia on MTV concert, and all the albums and lineups, reunions, and so forth that happen over the next almost 40 years. So you can look forward to that. Our stuff is always out on Thursdays. You can check out all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at ugly underscore werewolf and at actionjack72. So until next week, be thinking about Asia, dig into that back catalog, and hopefully we'll be hearing from you here real soon on The Wolf. Until then, everybody around the world, be cool and stay safe. If you rang in the new year with someone special and you're starting a new chapter in your relationship in 2023, Indochino can help you look your best on your big day. With their huge variety of customizable details and fabrics, Indochino lets you design your own unique look from made-to-measure blazers and suits to a custom portrait-worthy tuxedo, all with no tailor necessary. Shop online to set up your measurement profile and choose your fabric and customizations. Or if you prefer an in-person experience, book an appointment at an Indochino showroom to work with an expert-style guide. Then sit back while your suit is made for you and delivered straight to your door. Suits start just $4.49 and premium fitted shirts start at $89. So if you're ringing in 2023 with wedding bells, plan your custom look with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code NEWCHAPTER to get 10% off any purchase of $3.99 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O dot com. Promo code new chapter. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.